Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Herrick Does That. My name is Yariv Ben-Ari. I'm from Herrick Feinstein in New York, where I co-chair our firm's Israel practice and our hospitality practice. Today, I have an exciting group of friends with me from all over the world that are going to be talking about capital investments in the hospitality industry around the world. Uh, first, I have Ram Spector from Israel with the firm Shibolet. I have Rahul Thakrar from England, from Boodle Hatfield. And last but not least, I have Jonathan Fallick of JF Capital Advisors. Uh, I'm going to ask each one of my friends to tell us a little about themselves and uh, their firm. And then we're going to do something interesting today. Instead of us uh, at Herrick asking our colleagues some questions, we're actually going to have Jonathan Fallick ask the lawyers what they're doing. Let's see what happens there and how the lawyers hold up under uh, questioning. So with that, Ram, tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm. Sure, I'm happy to do that. Ram Spector, I'm uh, co-heading the fund formation uh, practice here at Shibolet. Shibolet is one of the largest firms in Israel, a full-service uh, corporate law firm uh, that provides services to local and international clients, a very wide variety of services. Rahul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Rahul Zakharov from Boodle Hatfield here in London. Um, I'm a partner in the corporate team here, and we have a, I have a specialism in uh, hotel, hospitality, and leisure. Um, the firm is a private capital firm. We're celebrating our 300-year anniversary this year, so we're 300 years old, um, but act for all types of high net worths, ultra high net worths, and other forms of private capital, um, providing services um, across the spectrum. So really a full-service law firm in that respect. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself and JF Capital Advisors. First, thank you for having me. Uh, I've been fortunate to do a lot of work on a lot of different projects with Yariv and with his partners at Herrick. Unlike Rahul, founded JF Capital Advisors in 2004, so we're not quite 300 years old, but soon, soon we'll be 20 years old. Uh, JF Capital is a strategic capital markets advisory uh, firm. We've completed about $35 billion worth of transactions as uh, capital raising agents for debt and equity. We've done numerous recapitalizations and restructurings. We've asset managed about 130 properties, and we focus on a lot of things, all hospitality related, but that are complicated, difficult, usually with multiple moving pieces and parties. And while I'm uh, based in New York City, I'm in Southern Florida right now, uh, practice all over the United States and do a little bit of work in Israel as well. Historically, many years ago, did some work in London also, but uh, that's that's going back uh, 20 years. So very excited to, to be here and very excited to kick this off. Okay, with that, uh, Jonathan, I'm handing over the moderator controls to you. So you know what they say when you give someone the microphone, you know, you, you better trust and, and then just hope for the best. But uh, let's let's have some fun. Rahul, as, as we think about hospitality investments, right, we've gone through a lot over the last couple of years that no one had a playbook for, no one understood. When you're looking at new investments today at the asset level, at the fund level, are they primarily for recapitalizations and restructurings or are they kind of normal way 
investments that you would have seen or made, you know, three years ago, five years ago? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jonathan. So I think um, kind of three, five years ago, the market for hotels, certainly here in the UK, was very hot. There was a lot of M&A activity. Um, you had funds coming in across the world, buying up hotels um, at a pace. Obviously, COVID slowed that down massively. Um, I think what's happening now is we're seeing about half and half. So we're seeing a lot of um, private equity buyers, particularly from the US, um, coming in and buying buying hotel groups, hotel chains, um, as that market is coming back. But we're also seeing a lot of kind of buyers investing capital in improving hotels, perhaps doing maintenance improvements that haven't been done over the last couple of years because all of that got put on hold. Um, so really investing that capital to improve and do those maintenance works that should have been done um, over the last couple of years. In terms of kind of on the, on the M&A side, um, I think we're seeing private equity buyers look at regional hotels. So London is coming back, but in the regions, kind of more holiday destinations, because that market has certainly come back quicker than, I guess, business travel, um, where London has a, has a huge, you know, huge market in. Um, so yeah, certainly regional, regional transactions seems to be the name of the game at the moment for new investments. Great. And are you seeing, are you seeing new funds formed uh, specifically for restructuring or recapitalization or, you know, distressed, uh, distressed opportunities? Are you seeing new, new capital funds formed for that today? Here in the UK, I have to say not, not hugely. I think um, there is, we're not at the significant levels of distress that I think perhaps um, distressed funds would hope for. Um, what we're seeing is, is the bigger kind of hotel chains uh, having sufficient cash or having sufficient, you know, being recapitalized sufficiently to be able to uh, continue on. What we are seeing is some kind of individual hotel players going into administration, but but that, the volume of deals in that set, in that place in the market is not significant enough for funds. It's more kind of private individuals, high net worths moving into those sectors and buying up those hotels and administration. Great. And Ram, I'd like to get your perspective on the same. The first topic, um, you know, are you seeing new funds formed or new capital vehicles being formed? specifically for recapitalization or, or restructuring. Uh, and, and I'll ask it in two parts, in the Israeli marketplace, you know, and for uh, recapitalizations outside of Israel. Right. So um, I don't see uh, a lot of recapitalization and restructuring activity. What we do see is a very interesting new trend in Israel of um, – turning the focus of uh, institutional investors to the local market because the local market uh, originally was dominated by uh, the large uh, hospitality uh, managers and not the funds. And recently, the COVID created a very interesting um, environment where very good assets uh, were put up for purchase at a very significant discount, sometimes 40 to 50%. And of course, you know, uh, um, it became very interesting for, uh, for the local institutions, uh, uh, who wanted to, uh, to get into that market, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 uh, uh, capitalize on, on, on that. So that was a great motivation for forming, um, 
Israeli-focused hospitality funds, with the first being um, Evo uh, Hospitality Fund by IBI Investment House and uh, Israel uh, and uh, Africa Israel Hotels, uh, announced in uh, late last year, and others uh, followed with focus on Israeli uh, hospitality properties and northern Mediterranean countries with similar characteristics. Um, but uh, uh, we don't see uh, we don't see many recapitalizations and restructurings, but we do see a uh, an equity purchase of operational hotels or um, a new trend that we see in Israel in the recent years is a purchase of land for development of new hotels. Yeah, for our business, fortunately, when government gets overly involved, it usually leads to restructuring opportunities in the future. Right, right. But I just wanted to add that in addition to the uh, to the new funds we see that focus on local uh, hospitality assets, we also you know see uh, the trend of Israeli money going to uh, uh, U.S., U.K., and European assets with um, Israeli sponsors like uh, Electro Real Estate and Fatal uh, launching new products that that target hospitality assets in in those areas, which are very classic for Israeli investors to focus on. Do you think that's a continuing trend? Do you think there will be four, five, six others that get launched behind Electra and Fatal? Probably, yes, because what we see in the local market is also happening everywhere else, right? We, we see opportunities uh, to purchase assets at below uh, regular value uh, just because the, uh, uh, the RevPAR and their EBITDA went down. Uh, so um, everyone, analysts are expecting, you know, to go back to normal within a few years. Now it's a question of, uh, of course, of of the speed, how quickly we can recover. Uh, having the the most recent uh, financial markets downturn, inflation, and uh, rising uh, uh, interest rates, but maybe it can slow down a little bit the the recovery. But uh, definitely everyone is expecting that we'll be back to normal in, uh, in a few years. So it only makes sense to, um, to invest in um, yielding assets. Let's talk about back to normal. Uh, do you think back to normal happens in, in Israel in a year or two? If there ever was a normal in Israel, <laughs> well, Israel is 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 typically a very um, a very fragile uh, hospitality sector. It is uh, influenced by many geopolitical um, uh, uh, um, events that we have around us. But in terms of uh, getting back to normal after COVID, yes, we uh, we think so. It depends, of course, on uh, uh, whether or not we will have new waves or a new variants of, of the COVID and new uh, lockdowns and, uh, and other restrictions on inbound tourism, which is very, very crucial for the, uh, for the performance of Israeli hospitality. But uh, we do expect to get back to normal. Of course, it makes sense that certain assets will recover qu- more quickly than others. Uh, as we saw between the lockdowns, uh, some uh, uh, some hotels that are located in a more traditional vacation destination, such as the Dead Sea, Eilat, the Red Sea, or the Sea of Galilee, uh, enjoy a very high occupancy levels, whereas uh, city center located uh, assets like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem uh, underperformed a little bit because they rely heavily on 
international tourism. And when that was uh, uh, restricted, of course, you know, their occupancy was, was quite down. So if we uh, uh, speak about recovery, some assets may recover more, uh, uh, more quickly than others. But um, we're all optimistic, I guess. Yeah. And Rahul, in, in the UK, how do you feel? Back to normal, a year away? How does it differ between the urban city centers and more regional cities? Yeah, I think the I think the kind of regional holiday destinations here in the UK are certainly starting to see a, a slightly faster recovery um, as as people in the UK and, and overseas um, want to go to kind of you know regional uh, holiday destinations here in the UK. I think London is recovering fast. There is certainly optimism here. Um, there is certainly investment going on in in, in London hotels um, and acquisitions of London hotels going on. Um, so I think those areas, I, I, I suspect we're a year, 18 months away before we get some kind of normality. I think the big difficulty here for us in the UK and certainly London is um, is obviously inflation, which is coming up, but also availability of staff. Um, we have a huge issue here in the UK currently with availability of good staff, good employees who can fulfill the roles that we need them for, to fulfill. Um whether you blame it on on Brexit, COVID, or anything else, um, there is a there is a drive in all sectors of the market. Rahul, that's interesting because uh, I'm sorry to jump in, but we're we're having that same issue right here in New York and across the, the country in terms of uh, having staff, whether it's uh, at all levels, anything from the food and beverage outlets through the maintenance and and so forth. I mean, just last night I went out with some uh, colleagues who uh, came to visit from Israel. And uh, they were telling me that the air conditioning unit had gone out in their room and though it doesn't really have no one to come and fix it, then they sent them like an oscillating fan. Uh, but I think that's something that's consistently driving uh, the, the challenges to hotels throughout the world is where did all the staff go? And we don't have enough staff to reopen. Um, we're seeing conferences going on in places like Vegas, California, and it's very hard to book them because we don't have staff at the hotels to manage all these events. Um, and it, I think that's one of the key factors. And Jonathan, to your question about normalization, how do we really, uh, setting aside the, the, the Excel charts and the budgets and so forth, what happened to our staffing ability? And that's gone. And, and that's uh, the, the question is, how do we bring it back? And I think that's, that's one of the key drivers for reopening a lot of the other outlets that are in hotels. And while that's a little bit easier in a place like uh, New York, Tel Aviv, London, where uh, again, depending where you are, you could just, uh, you know, if you can't reopen up your, your breakfast buffet because you don't have a kitchen staff, well, you can give a guest a voucher and they go across the street to a Starbucks to, to a diner or to a restaurant and they can solve that problem. But if you're in other areas where they don't have that uh, and you can't open up your food and beverage, you can't open up your banquets, events and bars and so forth, that becomes a real challenge to, to, to operate in the hotel. And it's those, it's those all those other revenue streams, Yarif, that you refer to, kind of events, corporate events, weddings, celebrations, whatever they might be, which generates sort of revenue outside RevPAR, I guess, for, for some of these hotels, that is going to be difficult to come back. And that will take longer because of the staffing issue. Ultimately, where, where, where do we end up? Probably higher wages um, for staff to try and attract people back to that industry. But that obviously hits bottom line. And, and that's what people are kind of grappling with currently, I think, here in the UK. It's a great topic, and there, there's no right answer. Rahul is right. It's, it's, we'll, we'll ultimately resettle at a higher wage level. Um, but in addition to the wages, one of the things that happened as a lot of hotels globally just shut down 
on a day or two days notice or went to almost shutdown status with many employees furloughed, many employees terminated with lack of clarity. Many people who just for years and years came to hotels and did their job started to rethink, is this stable? Is there growth in this for me? Is there, you know, if, if I'm uh, cleaning rooms, can I be cleaning rooms in a hospital five minutes, 10 minutes away from my home instead of traveling 30 minutes each way? Is there a position that is more uh, more acceptable of the children that I have in the daycare or childcare needs? So we, uh, in the US and, and uh, throughout most of the globe, we ended up uh, subsidizing people's not working through government, uh, through government facilities, government liquidity facilities. And it gave people who otherwise needed to make a, a paycheck to pay the rent the time to kind of sit at home, in some cases, spend substantially more time with family members uh, and really think about, are there other options? Are there other opportunities? So, you know, the only way we're going to effectively bring people back is not through higher wages. That's that's sort of a almost a given, but we'll have to create some more flexibility in terms of people's schedules instead of, you know, we have this mentality, start at nine in the morning and end at five in the afternoon. For some people, that doesn't make sense at all because that's when their their kids have after school activities or they may want to start earlier or start later. Uh, and we'll need to be smarter about who can do what jobs effectively and we'll need to do more training and create more longevity. Uh, there are a lot of people who are very loyal, very hardworking employees who got a phone call one day or got called into an office saying, you know, don't don't come back. You know, we're sorry, we don't know what to do, but like we're shutting down and and that was very jarring across the globe. So we as an industry are going to have to figure out how to make it more exciting for people to have a career, you know, not just uh, while you're in university, a, a part time obligation, but it, it, it will it will impact profitability. So, you know, so we will have changes in the operational structure and and the, the wage uh, and benefits structure. Uh, and advancement. Now, Rahul, in terms of in terms of kind of new investment underwriting, both at the fund level and the asset level, uh, when you when you're looking at at debt facilities and looking at equity commitments and returns, do they look different? Does it look materially different than on a pre-COVID or mid? I hate to say mid-COVID basis. Are people looking at higher leverage levels? Uh, I, I think you're. You have fancier uh, lexicon. You call it gearing, right? You know, are there higher gearing gearing levels or ratios? And in, in the U.S., we just call it debt or leverage. Or does it cost more? Are the equity return expectations higher or lower? Yeah, so it's a it's a really good question, Jonathan, because I, I think that's the other thing I would say, which is kind of the barrier to getting to getting us back to where we were pre-COVID as quickly as possible, which is the availability of debt, um, which has still um, difficult. Banks are still reluctant with any kind of hotel debt, particularly development finance, a bit less so investment finance, but you know, developing a new hotel in this market is incredibly difficult to get bank debt for. What we're, what we're instead seeing is alternative funds, US and, and elsewhere, and, and UK funds coming in and providing alternative debt finance. They typically have much higher 
return criteria, IRR-based rather than you know traditional banks, which which might be kind of margin on their on their cost of funds based, and they are still at kind of you know not not reaching the higher leverage levels that perhaps were available pre-COVID and that equity investors would like to see. So I think kind of where that leaves us is the equity is having to put in more money uh, into deals. That typically means lower returns over the over the life of a deal because they can't leverage up as or, or gear up as as highly, um, and they're having to take that on the chin. There's no there's no way um, out of that if they want to invest in this sector. Um, that's the returns expected. I will say, though, because of, I think, what Ram mentioned before about pricing, pricing is not where it was pre-COVID. That market was particularly hot. So I think pricing has come down. So you are seeing a lot of interest in the sector um, and people accepting perhaps they might not get return from um, leverage. But if they're buying smartly and at better pricing, then they might see, see return from that. I guess there's always hope and prayer, right, for a refinancing. Yeah, I think I think you know a lot of people. There's there's always talk on any deal about um, buying an asset, asset managing, improving the asset, a bit of capex on the asset, and then refinancing in two or three years' time. I think that talk is is still around, but less so now because everyone acknowledges we're facing much more challenging market conditions. Um, given inflate, where inflation is across the world, given availability of staff, kind of the things we've talked about um, on this podcast already. So I think there is a bit less of that going on, but that, that always does exist. Yes, of course. Yeah, I was going to I was gonna mention something that kind of speaks to something that all three of you were saying. Uh, just yesterday, I had a, a, a client from overseas call up and ask me to reach out to uh, three different financial institutions, two banks and a fund, about uh, allowing them to, to finance the acquisition of a hotel. And um, well, two things were very interesting. All three said that because they were not, they had they had hotels on their balance sheet already that they had expected them to refinance out and get off the balance sheet. They don't didn't have an allocation left to finance hotels um, because they couldn't refi out the existing uh, balance sheet loans that they had made for hotels. And two, in this case, because it was an uh, overseas client coming to the U.S. for the first time, they said that due to the last couple of years where they uh, you know, with travel restrictions, with uh, rising uh, cost of fuel for travel, um, and so forth, um, they said that before they would uh, even consider making the loan, they wanted to know who would be the person with boots on the ground to manage the investment. They were not even willing to entertain a foreign principal with a local um, asset manager. They wanted to know that there was somebody uh, meaningful, uh, a principal from the other side that would be based locally to run. The investment. So those are, are, are two interesting things. Just yesterday, I heard about. I, I think that's interesting, Eric. But particularly that last point, we're certainly seeing people want local people on the ground, being able to run deal with issues, um, you know, close next to the asset, not not trying to deal with it from another jurisdiction. Um, and that's certainly a feature mm-hmm. we're seeing more in, in the UK debt market. Absolutely, Ram. Ram, how are you? How how are you seeing changes in debt requirements or equity requirements in in Israel? Well, I absolutely agree with everything Rahul said because uh, um, you know it's 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 pretty much the same uh, the same here. But one point I wanted to uh, to add to that is that if we expect uh, inflation to uh, uh, to further rise and interest rates to go uh, to go further up. Uh, the 
availability of, of that uh, uh, will be uh, will be much smaller because of the cost of of, of obtaining it so uh, not only uh, um, you know the, the difficulties of dealing with the caution of of, uh, um, of investors and you know requirements to have local uh, uh, local foods uh, local feet on the ground to uh, to manage the properties but uh, we will also uh, pay a higher cost for our for debt finance uh, just because you know money is much more expensive than it used to be six ten months ago so we've gotten, you know, as a, as a global uh, phenomenon, we've gotten very spoiled with very low cost debt uh, over the last thirteen years or so, right? If right. if we go back to two thousand seven, when everything was booming, everywhere thirty day LIBOR rates uh, were approximately five percent, and by two thousand nine, when the credit markets were upside down. 30-day LIBOR rates were about 20 basis points, so from 5% to 0.2%. Uh, it really didn't move much for years and years. Uh, it didn't move meaningfully until recently. Uh, and there's still rates are still very low relative to longer-term historical norms, but relative to where they were and where people were thinking about underwriting deals um, you know, much more, much more challenging, uh, and much more challenging as you think about increasing, you know, increasing rates with more scrutiny on the level, right? So if you get lower gearing with higher cost of interest, right, that's the double whammy. The only other thing I'd add to that, Jonathan, I agree with what you say is banks are also a sort of added cost for borrowers, whereas pre-COVID, you know, it was advised, but never, never a requirement. Now it's a requirement to have a hedging strategy in place. That is an absolute, you know, basic requirement of any kind of funding on a, on a hotel transaction, a large real estate transaction, to be honest, uh, anywhere here in the UK, um, to hedge out some of that risk and exposure for the lender, essentially. And that's, that's tricky also because of the level of volatility we're seeing in the capital markets, putting on some interest rate hedge, you know, even even buying a two-year interest rate cap is more expensive than it should be in a in a stabilized environment. Uh, just just watching changes in rates. Are you seeing Rahul? Are you seeing any kind of new that along those same lines? Are you seeing any new issues that are relevant today in in either capitalizing a deal or doing a deal that people have learned as a result of going through this disastrous covid uh period how how documents get written are documents getting written differently is underwriting different i think uh it's a good question i think the sensitivity analysis done on an underwrite is uh much more cautious than perhaps it would have been you know i'm, I'm not saying um when you look at underwrite, you assume another kind of COVID happening. Because I think if, if we did that, no deal would ever get done. Um, but there is much more caution around underwriting um, what could happen documentation-wise, not material differences, but um, I guess making sure borrowers are slightly better capitalised. There's, a, I guess, a bigger focus on if things do go wrong, the ability of the borrower sponsor um, owner to put money, more money into the deal and keep the asset alive um, if things did start to go wrong. So we're definitely seeing that as a feature kind of from an underwriting perspective. 
So Ram, I came to I came to Israel in June of maybe of 2021 for my nephew's bar mitzvah. And getting in was was a crazy extensive fill out 15 forms and apply and beg and plead, you know, to to come in and then quarantine. Israelis are very resilient probably the most resilient people of all, very adaptive to change, but you saw the borders just like shut really fast and say restrictive for quite a while until more recently. Does that, did that impact or is that impacting how hospitality transactions are are getting underwritten or capitalized today? Well, I'm not sure there is a direct influence, but you, you know, you definitely did see uh, how that conservative policy towards uh, inbound tourism and you know all the extra covid checks that you need to have and and quarantine and uh, all these procedures they did reduce the number of incoming tourists by a very very large scale so uh, very recently you'll be happy to to hear that very recently Israel announced that all these restrictions are are lifted and now you can land in Israel and and just uh, get, go straight to your uh, taxi or or your car without any uh, further delays. But this all was done with the hope to bring back the international tourists, which are, of course, a big driving force behind the Israeli hospitality sector. But uh, if, if I may just uh, circle back to, to the question you, you asked Rahul about the legal points what we see basically as a result of COVID is uh, maybe two uh, uh, main fine tunings uh, uh, in the legal documents. One of being, of course, is a, it's is quite trivial, is the update of the uh, force majeure provisions, right? So uh, almost globally, I think, uh, uh, doc, you know, contracts have updated uh, uh, the force majeure provision to include COVID-19 and general pandemics and government shutdown orders as force majeure events uh, that may excuse a party from performance, which is now quite important because at the beginning of, of the pandemic, there was a wave of, of uh, litigation in, in I think in every country to resolve the problems of, of non-performance. And the second, in I, I, I'm not sure it's uh, uh, it's exclusive to uh, hospitality investment, but generally in in business investment uh, sphere, we see that operating covenants are getting a little bit more flexible, meaning that you know you, you get more flexibility on maintaining certain occupancy levels, if you will, or uh, income levels uh, during a period between sign and close. Uh, so that you don't find yourself in uh, breaching a contract just because you know you had another variant that uh, influenced your uh, business performance during during that time, and uh, sometimes we see it's a big point for negotiation between parties. This is also uh, as a result of COVID. My working assumption, Ram, is that will continue to evolve over time. Like I think back to March and April of 2020. And Yariv and I were working on a few different client situations where we're sitting on the phone at 11 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock in the morning saying we have covenants in various documents between the mortgage loan documents, franchise agreements, operating agreements, ground leases. Some say you must operate continuously. Some say you must maintain certain levels of service. 
right? Operate in a first class manner and, and various things that are very difficult to define precisely. While there are others that say you must, you know, maintain and safeguard the asset. You must take, you know, take the steps to protect, you know, protect the the asset and its status. And, and then we have employee related issues. So there were things that directly conflicted with no real guidance and, you know, where, where, you know, you guys are all talented lawyers. I'm just the, I'm just the finance guy, but where you could make a compelling legal argument on either side of the ledger, you know, this document says this, this says this, what do you do? And I have not seen a lot of change in that regard where, you know, God forbid we have the same situation again and came through another March or April of 2020, I think people will have a much better understanding of what to do immediately, what actions to take immediately, but not necessarily does that comply or is that in sync with what the various legal documents, agreements, and instruments actually say. So I think I think some of that will evolve over time. Some of it will never evolve. You know, and there there might just be disputes uh, disputes over some of it. You know, John, I'm I'm looking at what we're doing here in the U.S. And um, ever since we did some of those restructurings, I think the the two things that keep popping up in all of my documents, be it on the uh, borrower side or lender side, that we keep having fights over are one, uh, including force majeure provisions and what they mean and how much time we get. Uh, everybody is hypersensitive to uh, not only because of the pandemic, because of all the disruption in the uh, supply lines that we continue to have. So that has become a major uh, point of, of uh, controversy in loan documents. Uh, separate from that, there's a whole discussion in loan documents now about uh, what was known in the U.S. as the PPP money, uh, the, the, the funding that we received from the government to, to, to help us support retaining employees. Uh, what happens to that money? Who controls the money? Is it collateral for the loan? What will it look like in the future? Tremendous amount of discussion about that. And uh, separate from that, um, we're seeing in New York, the uh, there's a new law called Local Law 97 and 99 that are requiring us to upgrade uh, buildings by 2030 and 2050, uh, two different timelines. And uh, the investment that have to go into buildings in order to uh, bring them up to code in terms of clean energy and so forth. So um, the ability to uh, include those types of loans as uh, senior loans in our deals has become a major point of controversy, especially now that interest rates are going up. People are trying to understand what the capital stack and debt stack will look like. And it's, it's somewhat of an unknown world right now as well, which is holding up deals closing. So the other the other area, uh, Yariv, that I know you and I have spent a lot of time on with international capital coming into the U.S., a lot of that international capital is obviously targeting the major cities like New York City. And uh, and there's a, a lack of understanding generally of the union collective bargaining agreements uh, and labor issues and how to contract with that, how to manage around that, whether that's debt or equity. Usually it's for equity purchasers or investors and the union agreements and obligations are different across different cities. They're different contracts. So there's overall labor law, uh, there, there's the overall national labor law, but the contracts in New York or San Francisco are particularly onerous 
in certain other markets like Philadelphia or, um, you know, they're not. And then you go to certain certain places like in the state of Texas, I believe there are only three hotels operated with union labor. And, you know, they all had massive government incentives or are owned by a governmental entity. So, you know, uh, uh, Ram, are you seeing kind of equity investors uh, looking abroad uh, focused on the labor issues and getting the right people at the right time to evaluate uh, to evaluate the, the acquisitions or, or investments? As far as Israeli sponsors are concerned, they usually uh, tend to invest in other geographical areas in, in collaboration with a local partner. Because of this issue and other very local real estate-related issues that a foreign uh, um, uh, equity investor simply cannot uh, track without, you know, having a profound understanding and familiarity with uh with the local market so and, and the local practices so you would usually see israeli sponsors teaming up with uh with local uh partners to uh guide them through all these issues and you don't see major discussions in advance about you know labor issues but there is an understanding that in certain jurisdictions you have you know more onerous uh, employment laws and in others they're more lenient um, so it's just one of the considerations that equity investors uh, have to take and you know uh, uh, into account but it is very helpful to have someone local to navigate through these obstacles. Labor unions are being only one of them. Well, as we wrap up, I'll make a short plug for uh, for Yariv and for Herrick. Uh, one of the things that I think Herrick does particularly well and Yariv does exceptionally well is you know uh, work as a sounding board and as not just a legal advisor, but like a practical sense advisor for foreign investors coming in that need to meet the right consultants, architects, uh, specialists, whether it's related to labor or liquor or food and beverage, uh, and connect all of those pieces, all of those things that you know are not necessarily in a set of legal documents, but are critical in thinking through whether transactions make sense, thinking about the risk profile. So I've always enjoyed working with with Yariv and his colleagues and his partners. And uh, Yariv, I thank you and, and Herrick for having Ram and Rahul and myself on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you participating today. This was really amazing. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.